Welcome to another episode of this podcast series by the program in International Nutrition at Cornell University, or as we call it, the PIN Podcast. In this series, trainees in PIN interview leaders and rising stars in the field of international nutrition and global health. Today on the podcast, our interviewers include myself. My name is Kripa, and I'm a fourth-year PhD student, as well as some other PIN trainees. Hola a todos. Yo soy Elizabeth, a PhD candidate. Hi, I'm Nidhi. I'm a master's student. And today we have with us Dr. Jennifer Friedman. Dr. Friedman is a pediatrician who conducts international health research out of Lifespan's Center for International Health Research. Her research addresses quantification of and mechanisms of morbidity of parasitic diseases among pregnant women and children. And her recent work addresses treatment strategies to mitigate morbidity among pregnant women and children and how to change and implement policies for more inclusive treatment programs for schistosomiasis. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Friedman. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Uh, thank you for having me. To start us off, we would love to hear more about your earlier career trajectory or experiences, how you graduated with a bachelor's degree in history of art and then went to med school and also got an MPH and a PhD. Okay, so I was at uh, Brown University as an undergraduate, and the, one of the really nice things about Brown was that it had a very open sort of curriculum and a very liberal, let's say, set of requirements. So I could be, I knew I wanted to be a doctor, so I could do all of my pre-med pieces, but then also kind of stay away a little bit from science, since that was so science-laden, and was really interested in the history of art and architecture. So my concentration or major, as they call it here, is concentration was in history of art and architecture. And I really loved that it was a different way of thinking day to day. Kind of broke up a lot of the more hardcore science. It was a little bit more memorization oriented and things like that. And it's just sort of a different way of thinking and seeing the world. And, and there's a lot of history in art history, which I also really loved. And so then along the way, I would say I got interested in research a little bit. I had a job working as a research assistant on a study looking at barriers to women in Rhode Island receiving mammography or mammograms. And I think that really got me excited about the idea of research as a way to impact health, but then went along to do medical school and things like that. But I think I kind of kept in mind the idea that I really loved research and then spent some time in a laboratory actually at Albert Einstein in New York. And a lot, I thought I liked the lab and the person working there just happened to be an immunologist. And then I, so I came back to my senior year at Brown and I was like, oh, I kind of love research and the lab piece is one way to do that. And I met a man named Paul Knopf, who was a colleague of Maddie Sharp, who was at Einstein. And so I worked in his lab and his lab was an immunology lab, but happened to focus on schistosomiasis. So that was my first sort of foray into global health and schistosomiasis. But at the end of that experience, I realized after I had cultured human and other cells, mammalian cells at a pH of like 14 for the entire semester, that lab work probably wasn't the best way for me to go. But I still realized I love the idea of research and I love the idea of global health and parasitology. And so then later when opportunities came up really during medical school to work with a mentor in schistosomiasis who did more applied global health or clinical epidemiology, I worked with him and then circled back to him years later for um, master's work as well. But I think the lesson for a lot of us along the way is that 
you set off on a path and you think you know what you're interested in or you may know broadly, but as you move along, a lot of that has to be honed by what A, you're good at maybe, or where your passions end up or opportunities also, right? So sometimes there may not be the opportunity that you want or that you think you're most interested in, but if you keep an open mind and kind of hopefully apply your, your passions to that field, I think it helps a little bit in terms of making sure you have the opportunities that you need. Not to say that you give up on what you're really interested in and what you really want to do, but there's a little bit of those realities as well. Thank you. That, that is a, a really interesting journey from that very beginning in history of art. And we were wondering if we could get a, a sneak peek, I guess, in your day-to-day activities. So sort of like, what do you do? What is what is a what does a normal day in your life look like in terms of doing what you do, bringing together all these fields in, in research? Yeah, so I still see patients in clinic once a week. A long time ago, people said that I probably shouldn't be spending my time doing that anymore and focus a little bit more on research. But I really, you know, I really find some inspiration in that. I really like pediatric colleagues and taking care of kids. For me, it's a nice way to like get out of my office and really have a very, you know, a very sort of concrete, hands-on, kind of health-oriented approach. And I really love teaching the next generation of pediatric residents. So I've kind of held on to that. Probably in the next few years, I won't be able to do as much of that anymore to focus a little bit back more on research because it does become a little bit, little bit encompassing, let's say. And then the other four days of the week when I'm not in clinic, I'm in a freestanding research center. So I do some administrative work, obviously directing the center, but I really mostly do research. I don't do a lot of teaching. I'm, a, I'm probably, to be honest with you, a very different model than what the career path of most PhDs are, just because my appointment is in a school of medicine, our center is part of a hospital system. So I don't spend a lot of time teaching. So I don't really get paid to teach. So I don't have a lot of my day-to-day activities around teaching, unfortunately. I do a little bit more mentoring of PhD students, MPH students and postdocs, but that tends to be very embedded in our research mission and research center. I do a little bit of teaching lecture-wise about four or five lectures a semester throughout the year and anything from global health, nutrition, parasitic diseases, depending on, on what the interest is. So my teaching experience is probably a little bit less than the traditional PhD path to professor sort of track. It's not to say I don't love teaching. And I actually spend a lot of time in clinic. I teach the residents a lot. And then in our research center, it's a lot of mentoring and teaching around the research projects. And I really like that model of teaching with research. And to me, it's a very efficient way of like getting the work done, the work that we all have to do, the work that grants need to get done. And I really like mentoring in that path. So involving students along the way and getting the research done, helping to teach them as they go, hopefully getting them inspired to do global health along the way um, as a career path. And I think it really is the way that if we don't do that, I think that people really don't think of or would never think of global health or might not or nutrition or whatever the interest is. So I think if we don't do that and use that model to engage people in our research and our work, I don't really think that we really will recruit as many people as we need to and want to in global health. Well, hopefully everyone listening to this podcast will take this moment to also uh, get a bit of inspiration and join us. And a bit of going from that, I see you have a very unique perspective because you get to do uh, hands-on care with uh, patients, but also research, mentoring, and, and in this field of 
global health, nutrition, and infectious diseases. So we were wondering if you will give us a little bit of your view into what will be the research priorities in the next five or 10 years so that young people or the younger students generations can take on ideas from that. Yeah, that's a really great question. I sort of have struggled it in my own career a little bit because a lot of us start your careers doing sort of primary research. So causal inference and exposure outcome and, and what can we do to modify those high-risk exposures or mitigate those risks to improve health outcomes. So a lot of us spend the early part of our career doing that, right? And then you get very excited that, you know, we've got the solution, this seems to be the evidence, this works, we treat this or we treat this this often, or we can treat it when you're pregnant or if you're little, or we can really mitigate morbidity by doing this or that. But the problem becomes then is the next steps of that, right? Because that's to go from that to what people call pills and bottles or vaccines and arms or behavior change is a whole nother set of sciences, right? Along that translational path, we've got changing policy officially, changing policy in multiple nations, right? Either at the WHO level and hope that it trickles down or at the nation level, at everyone's own individual department of health. So when you do global health, I think a lot of those, a lot of those issues are really compounded. And I think that you have to really think about how do you do that at an individual nation level if you wanna change, you say it's a, a behavior around, let's pick prenatal alcohol consumption. When every country is very different in terms of whether women drink at all, whether women know that alcohol is not safe during pregnancy, or how do you inform, who does that informing? and How do you change regulation of that or messaging in prenatal care? And every nation has to do that pretty much on their own. And that's the, I think a very big challenge in global health and how do you partner with each country? So that policy piece I think is a very big area that we all have to think about. How do you change policy at the sort of individual country level? Do you start actually sort of above that and use governing bodies like WHO? I spoke to a lot of your professor colleagues today around you know, evidence synthesis and meta-analyses and the importance of those sorts of systematic reviews to sort of say, we have this much evidence, we've done all that work. How do we synthesize it? How do we use it to make policy recommendations? Because a lot of you know, developing nations are really looking for that guidance. Right? They may not have the resources to support policy analysts or the people that are going to synthesize that. So they're really looking for those partnerships. And I love the idea of training people in country and in those nations to do that work so they can do it in a way that's really relevant to their own countries. But I think that policy piece is very important. And then the really last piece or almost last piece is then how do you implement that, right? So now you've changed your policy on, a, on something in a, in a huge country maybe. How do you then get people to implement that? You know, that could be anything from now you have, say you use the alcohol in pregnancy. How do you regulate what's on bottles, right? What if people are just making home brews and have no idea that it even has alcohol or that it's bad during pregnancy? Do you educate people who are community health workers or people who do prenatal care? How do you message all of that so that people can know to change that behavior if they're really willing and able to change that behavior? And then there's a the whole right behavioral change and how do you really get people to change and motivate to them to change their behavior, which is a, you know, a whole different set of science. And I think along the way, what I learned was that as much as you can do that early on as a team, 
so that you're not doing those pieces in series, that you're really figuring out whether it's a disease mechanism or what's the best intervention, or then how do you change the policy, that you really bring people along early so that you can have the expertise to bear to move things a little bit more quickly and efficiently. And I think the answer then is that you kind of need people that have all those skills. And hopefully they're working more and more as teams so that we can do that a little bit more efficiently. Yeah, thank you for the great points, Dr. Friedman, and just pointing out how important it is to do translational research and support policy work globally. So we were wondering if there are any skills that you really valued from your PhD MD work that you still use to this day, and if you had any advice for current PhD or other graduate students, what are the skills that they should really be honing? Oh, that's a great question. So I would say that, you know, I really do think that I work with a lot of physician colleagues. So a lot of MD colleagues, and I think you guys don't realize the importance of the skill set that you gain just during the master's portion of your work, or call it the sort of methodology section of your PhD work, because it's not something that people know otherwise. A lot of physicians try to jump into research and I tell them it's like learning how to do a physical exam. Like you wouldn't throw someone off the street to take care of a child or examine them or do that. Those are the things we learn along the way. But if you really want to do research, you have to get those skills. So I tell a lot of physicians that they should probably go do a master's in clinical science or a master's in public health to really get those skills. So I really wouldn't underestimate the fact that that's a unique set of skills that people gain during, particularly during a PhD. And then doing the actual PhD work where you're really gaining depth and applying those skills and then really learning along the way all of the methodology that you you need to do the analysis. And then how do you think about synthesizing that in a manuscript so that you can share what you've learned with the rest of the world and then the grant writing piece. So I think along the way, you get very well prepared to do a lot of that type of work and to really be sort of poised to do research. I think the advice I would give, you know, I think that, to be honest with you, the most valuable part of my research training was probably two pieces, was just doing a master's degree in public health that allowed me a lot of flexibility to pick courses that I needed to apply to work that ultimately was my PhD from a Fulbright experience I had had. So really being able to choose that I needed to learn about longitudinal data analysis and clustered data. And at the time, that was really what I needed and then could apply that to my research. So, you know, I think staying passionate about what sort of content area you want to do work in and then matching your sort of skills or methodologic uh, learning to the the things that you want to do is really important. And then being able to have data as part of a PhD, where I then learned how to write a few papers and put those together and make them publishable units and All of that being very closely mentored by people before me that had done that for many years and did it very well and and really helped me learn how to do that along the way. I would also say that I have teenagers, so we, we talk still a lot about growth mindset, right? So growth mindset is that you keep learning and you keep growing. That if you close the door after you do your PhD or postdoc and then don't learn another thing, you're probably, it's going to be very hard to succeed because the world changes and methods change and approaches change. And if you don't sort of, if you're not willing to keep up with that and keep learning, learning whether you're learning with a PhD student or a postdoc to apply those newer methodologies, it gets very hard, especially if you think about writing NIH grants where they're looking at what's the innovation, what's innovative about this work. 
they're really looking to see that you are applying new, even methods and techniques and ideas. So I, years ago, while we were interested in mechanisms of, of disease and schista, what's causing morbidity. And I realized that I was reading like this whole thing called structural equation modeling and how to think about, you know, mechanistic pathways. And I had a great postdoc and he's like, I want to take a course if we're going to do this. And I said, that's great. And then I was going to send him and I said, you know, I have to write about this in grants and papers. And at the very least, even if I'm not doing those analyses, which I ultimately didn't have time to end up doing, he did them. Um, I really want to know what's the rationale, what's the scientific rationale, and then what can we apply that to? So, you know, I think being open to learning new things along the way, both with trainees and, and really on our own is really important too. I think as a clinician or physician, I've been probably a little bit more oriented towards how are we really gonna impact health in the nearer term? A little bit less theoretical, let's say. So probably a little bit further along the translational cascade than maybe some scientists who do a little bit more, even more basic mechanistic work than we tend to do. We tend to do work that tends to really focus on how are we gonna impact health in the five to 10 year range? And I think being a pediatrician really helped me with, when you think about diseases and measuring morbidity in kids. So what's really important to the health of kids and how do we think about how a disease in particular, like a parasite might negatively impact their health. So how to measure kids' health, I think was something that was helpful to have some background in. And I think as pediatricians, it helps us do that a little bit. I was also saying earlier that I, you know, if you really think about team science, a lot of pediatricians want to do research, but and know how to measure kids' health and outcomes. But what we don't know or they don't know is what you guys bring to the table. So how do you how do you design a study? How do you measure an exposure? How do you think about confounders? How do you really quantify, you know, how do you have a theoretical outcome, but really operationalize that outcome and its definition? So all of those pieces that you guys bring to the table, I think make for really great partnerships. And I think we really need to be doing more of that, that sort of team science centers that have collaborators that do all different types of approaches to science, um, and then working together to make those things happen a little bit more efficiently. Thank you so much. And I guess my personal takeaway is the importance of teamwork and the growth mindset, like you mentioned, like keep learning and keep growing. And I guess sometimes as as students, we wonder if what we are doing even makes a difference. So it is good to know that what we are learning in our programs are really important in the real world as well. We are almost approaching the end of this podcast, but before we wrap up, we have two final questions and you can answer in whatever order you prefer. What is the best thing and what is the worst thing about your job? I can tell you the worst thing very quickly, uh, which probably, is, it probably applies a little bit less to you all in your future path, is, which is called medical hospital administration. So I'm a division director for a clinical group, and that part is the least fun part of my job, mostly because a lot of politics. Most of us who go into pediatrics really care about taking care of kids and doing our best to do that. And that takes resources and fighting for resources and primary care pediatrics doesn't make a lot of money. So a lot of fights about how to do that and, and really helping a hospital understand that goal and that mission of both training our next generation of pediatricians, but also providing quality health care for a population of patients that's poor and vulnerable, has terrible insurance, 
that that's still important to a hospital. So I spend a lot of my time sort of fighting about that and meetings about that. And that's really less fun and less interesting. I would really say that I think the best part of my job or my favorite is really the team science approach. Working with trainees who have different skill set, working with a group of colleagues here who do everything from very literally molecular biology, basic science of parasitic diseases to our group that does structural equation modeling, starting to think about how do we get policy implemented. So I really love that part of it. I like working as part of a team in general. I like that collaborative piece. I like training people in that model. So I think really getting science out that's collaborative with a team that I think is better able to impact health a little bit more quickly in a way that I think really helps us understand disease mechanisms and matching those mechanisms to the best approaches, I think is the most fun part. Thank you so much, Dr. Friedman, for joining us today. And it was great to learn about everything you've done and are doing. And thank you to the listeners of this podcast. Stay tuned for more insightful conversations with amazing researchers in international nutrition and global health. Thanks for listening. And many thanks to Elena Kierke for our theme music. Thank you.